consists really, in, in the ultimate sense, of a large, ravening mob of people all shouting. Well, that's uh, uh, <laughs> there's some truth to that. And, and since we believe in that large, ravening mob with people shouting, uh, we'd like to hear from the mob out there. Now, this lady made her wants and desires. No, no, I say that's fine. It's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, we would like to hear that. Uh, uh, the mob, of course, uh, and the voice of the mob, oftentimes is is, co- is incoherent, usually incoherent with rage. Now, it does not necessarily mean that the rage is justified, nor even logically uh, called for. But rage itself seems to be part of the essence or the spirit of that incalculable mob. 
Ariel, how many times have you been present when you heard somebody in the back car? This is the this is the cry of of democracy, inchoate, uh, containing large amounts of uh, of raging passion, yet very little logic. Don't ever let logic get in the way of uh, passion or rage. So uh, tonight we uh, would like to put this up before the ravening mob. Let's hear from you. Uh, telephone call, card, a wire, a brick through the window, uh, whichever is your thing, certainly we're not going to stand in the way of your style, which, uh, as inelegant as it might be, uh, certainly is your style. Uh, you know those, uh, you, you've seen those, those uh, the TV commercials you have, have you seen the one with the insurance company that says uh, there's only one person like you, and it shows the guy bowling and the lady with the things going up and down, you know, she bowls, and then they stop Yes, there's only one like you with your your <laughs> inimitable style. Certainly, there's only one. Well, by God, maybe that's for the better. <laughs> now that I come to think of it, uh, so did I ever ever tell you about the girl? Speaking of inimitable style, did I ever tell you about the girl I used to date? And it wasn't until late in the summer, after we'd been dating for about eight months, we finally got to the beach that I discovered she had webbed feet. And uh, it was her stash, swim like hell. But uh, outside of that, uh, <laughs> she let her one on to win a bronze at the Aachen, I believe it was, in the Olympics. But uh, six of one, half a dozen of the other. We have been looking around for a suitable replacement to our theme. There have been, let's face it, the pomposity factor in our civilization of today is important. Ed McMahon represents a kind of collective pomposity for the world in general. He can do an, an Alpo dog food commercial that gives you the feeling that it was made in the Taj Mahal for small carved ivory dogs. <laughs> That's kind of a nice image, isn't it? Thank God we're on tonight. However, uh, six of one, half a dozen the other, I say, though, that the, the, the voice of the mob, as inchoate as it is, must be heard. I've heard that voice many times. A shouting in rage from Section 12, way up there, back of the posts, in the third tier, where no football game can be seen by the naked eye. But nevertheless, the voice... <laughs> We're doing it for all of you. It's part of our public service programming out here. If your voice is a little off this season, we have 50,000 big, fat, vibrating RF watts. <laughs> George a lot of power, friends. Yes, sir. And uh, we can do it for all of you. However, uh, we've been looking for a suitable replacement theme. After all, it's almost the end of the year. We'd like to start out the new year with a spring in our step. Uh, and, uh, you know, just, hey, incidentally speaking, New York is fantastic. <laughs> I mean, it really is. You've heard this so many times. The other day, I am, I'll tell you what I saw. The other day, I'm walking along, going west on... 32nd Street. That's an interesting neighborhood. And I am nearing Park Avenue. Friends, uh, that's, that's in it. No, no, it was further up north. No, it was about 37th Street nearing Park. Yes, this is the high rent district. Yes, indeed, the high rollers are there. And I'm walking, I'm walking west on 37th Street. I'm coming up to Park, and I see two guys wearing Chesterfields. Now, you don't see many Chesterfields. You know what a Chesterfield is? A long black coat, you know, with a velvet collar. 
Chesterfields, elegant-looking gentlemen, foulards, uh, the whole bit. And what do you think they're doing? I, I couldn't believe what I'm seeing. They are wa they are hopping up and down on pogo sticks. I'm serious. And 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 they were looking at each other's form. The guy goes up and down. The other guy stands over and watches him. And then he says, "Wait." Then he goes back, and I'm I'm across the street. You know, I had a feeling that the Jack Nicholas of pogo sticks was instructing a neophyte. But uh, you know, you pick it up where you can, and you work the way you can. You know. So anybody who says Shepherd isn't relevant, I uh, what the hell is relevant? I, I <laughs> I've never. <laughs> now, oh, by the way, the word relevant is very important. The word relevant can be defined today as that which I am interested in. Okay? And only that. All the other is irrelevant, uh, ridiculous blatherskite. What the hell is blatherskite? Uh, it just came out of the head. But however, here, now, let's, let's hear. We, we've got to hear from the voice of the ravening mob. And uh, here is the theme which, after a great amount of uh, work, we have finally selected. And it's in keeping with what we call the dynamic pomposity factor of today. Now, what is the pomposity factor? Almost every major author today, for example, would never be a major author uh, unless he proclaimed to the world that he was, in fact, a major author. I saw Norman Mailer the other day being interviewed by one, about one of the worst books, probably, of the 20th century. This uh, Marilyn Monroe, a terrible book. Oh, one of the worst books. And, and when questioned about the fact that he had never met Marilyn Monroe, had never even been within five miles of Marilyn Monroe, and, and yet, he, you know, it did not stop him. He said, uh, it is a work of art I have created. At which point the uh, interviewer was a little bit taken aback and says, a work of art? He says, yes, it is a work of art because I, Norman Mailer, created it. How the hell can you answer that? That is dynamic pomposity in action, our new theme.
speak for all of us. And now, here is the star. <laughs> Hello, gang. <laughs> hey, George. Uh, that, that, that does it. That does it. It really does. I feel different. You know, since time began, every major, every major demagogue has realized that the uniforms, echo chambers, bullhorns, this is a, an absolute necessity. An absolute necessity. Do you think that you would watch Johnny Carson for 12 minutes if he was on Channel 47 in black and white? Do you? with two guys playing washboards and another guy playing a hillbilly fiddle as his band? No, you, of course, would not. The pomposity factor is a necessity in our time. will do. This is W.O.R. New York. Oh, come on. That was bad. We gotta do this bad. Give me a little echo chamber. A real big, broad echo chamber. Pow, 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 That's a station break. And now about a commercial, Herbert, please. The world's greatest magicians perform at the World Festival of Magic and the Occult. The weirdest show on earth. An unforgettable experience. Bring the whole family. You can hold each other's hand. The World Festival of Magic and the Occult. The weirdest show on earth. Wednesday, December 12th through Sunday, December 30th at the Felt Forum in Madison Square Garden Center. For ticket information, call 212-564-4400. Tickets also at Ticketron. Hey, listen, I'll tell you, if you think this is a... If you think this is a joke, any good magician will tell you production is all, friends. In fact, uh, Marcel Proust... <laughs> I shouldn't bring that up here on the radio. Marcel Proust, uh, who wrote from a cork-lined room... Uh, once made a famous statement, which uh, he regretted shortly thereafter, of course, because it was thrown back at him by two reviewers. Uh, he made a statement once that said, uh, in, in elegant terms, I will try to uh, anglicize it for you, he merely said, uh, style is all. Uh, you know, that's one of those things that sounds good. It has absolutely no meaning, but it sounds great, <laughs> like most aphorisms. He also one time said, vanity, ah, yes, vanity is all. 
Well, somebody said, well, just a couple of days ago, you said, style is all, Marcel. He said, ah, yes, but that was a couple of days ago. Which, incidentally, was later printed, too. That statement was printed, and it was later distributed on calendars. So uh, would you please give us another goodie, Herb, please? Before the holidays get here, it's time to think about giving Dubonnet. The time to drink Dubonnet is before meals. The time to give Dubonnet is now during the holidays. Take some along to a friend's home next time you drop in and give someone the gift of wine this season. If they're good friends, they'll open it and offer you a Dubonnet. Dubonnet, America's best-selling before-dinner wine. Before you, ah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dubonnet Company, New York, New York. Yeah, Dubonnet, Dubonnet. Speaking of Xmas... Uh, it's uh, W.O.R. Children's Christmas Fun Time again. Once again, Box 710, if you'd like to send a check off. <laughs> that's the name of a place. No, that's terrible. If you would like to send off a check. God, I don't know what's the matter with me. There are certain times when the, when the uh, in your head, you know, have you ever had, had the, the punning problem in your head? When you, when you begin to invent indescribably rancid puns in your head, just constantly... Like I said, send a check off, and immediately I said, Uncle Vanya, address it to... <laughs> oh, you got it! Oh, I knew you would. I like a literate crowd, right, George? Yes, indeed. Uh, I said, send your check to Uncle Vanya, you know? <laughs> oh, what a soak he was. But nevertheless, W.O.R. Children's Christmas Fund, Box 710, Times Square Station, New York, 10036. And a little note here, W.O.R. is going to repeat a special tribute to the late Martha Dean, or Marion Young, on Sunday, December 16th at 10.15 a.m. I would like to have been part of that, but like so many things, you know, seriously, uh, though, uh, all all, uh, jesting aside, though, I knew a guy. You know, this is a recognized psychological illness. There are two illnesses that are very rare, but man, when they get you, I've seen guys that have been sucked in by them. It is, it is, it is just, they can't stop it. Uh, And one of them is the rhyming syndrome. Now, now that's, that is really a psychological problem. (laughs) It it really is. Well, there's several very interesting uh, problems that the psychologists have, uh, have isolated recently that have, have, you know, that the probably you run into and you didn't know that you they were a problem. Do you know that there's one now that uh, that has gotten a great deal of publicity recently? Did you hear about the, the obscenity disease where people cannot stop hurling obscenities? I mean, the most the most straight-laced people all of a sudden, they holler and they say, oh, great Scott. <laughs> and they can't stop it. Did you know that? You've never heard of that one? Well, you probably have worked with guys like that, and you didn't know it was a sickness. You just thought, you know, it was he had a, a mind that was mildewed, you know, or something like that. But nevertheless, there is a sickness where where people cannot stop saying 
fantastic obscenities at the worst times. And, they, you know, they wind up, I don't know what they give them for it, X-Lax or something, but the point is that, uh, that it is a treatable disease. Then there's another one, the, 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 of course, the rhyming disease. I knew a guy one time who could not talk to you, seriously. I even remember his name because he made such an impression on me. Just an ordinary-looking guy. And he could not speak to you unless he was speaking in rhyme. And, and it, it, he did it like as if it was a funny, you know, always like he was being funny. Like, uh, oh, he'd say, you know, the most obvious things. Uh, he'd say things like, uh, hey, is that your paper cup? If you don't watch out, I'll trip you up. Ha, 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 ha. Oh, I says, come on, Bill, will you cut it out, for God's sakes? I mean, <laughs> cut it out. I've been a lot yesterday. Uh, and you'd say, oh, come on, Bill, stop it. Well, he made it into a career. In fact, this guy did a radio show where he did nothing but rhyme stuff. He would sit there, and he was a DJ, and he would come between the records, and come on, and he would he would rhyme everything. Well, it was a sickness. He couldn't help it. He, he It was just always there. That one, the rhyming thing, and the worst of all is the punning thing. Now, uh, guys have even got international reputations as wits with this. This is a... And, and, you know, the funny thing about puns, the pun, the pun is, is so, is so controversial that if, that if some people love puns, you know, and, but they're always embarrassed when they laugh at them because they know secretly that it is a sin against nature. It is a crime against sensibility and taste. They do. The guy that laughs at puns always goes, ha, 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 George, I love a pun. Ha, 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 George. He's doing it, though with a little look of uh, guilt in his eye. It's a kind of intellectual guilt. Now, there's the other kind of person who gets offended the minute you, you come out with a pun. Absolutely. You get, you get enraged. Lee is like that. Lee gets enraged. He won't talk for hours after you come up with a pun. And it's a great pun. You can come up with a great one. Uh, the greatest, uh, you know, punsters uh, recognize that uh, they do have their moments of inspired... Well, you can call it greatness, or you can call it the inspired depravity, depending on how you look at it. Because <laughs> depravity, too, can be an art form. And eventually, uh, by the 20th century, we'll be celebrated as such. Uh, we, uh, well, in fact, uh, the French have celebrated depravity. They have. Uh, in fact, there's an entire theater based on that. Uh, depravity, violence, blood, guts. You, you know, this it's fantastic theater. If you ever go there, you'll never forget it. You'll never go back again, but <laughs> you'll never forget it. <laughs> You're like a good juicy axe murder there before your eyes. All right, you know. But uh, uh, we have our moments of inspired, uh, inspired punning. And I came up with one about two or three years ago. I how long ago it was? Just came out one night. It was terrible. I, I admitted it was terrible. It was later reprinted in the Times, but I was never credited. Do you remember when, when Aristotle Onassis was home, look, was around looking for a home? Do you recall that one? Okay. Don't you remember that? Looking at a home of Buster? It was a pin. Uh, <laughs> he was looking. He was, he, I read a little note in the paper that Aristotle Onassis was, uh, was looking for a home, and, and uh, among other places he looked at was Buster Keaton's ex-Taj Mahal on the West Coast. So immediately the pun came up. Uh, Aristotle, 
examining a bus, uh, uh, a home of Buster. <laughs> terrible. I, I, I'm sorry. I mean, you know, I'm sorry. Because uh, you'd have to know about the famous uh, bust of Homer. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, and I was ashamed of it immediately. I came out with this thing, and immediately I apologized. If you recall, and if you heard it, I apologized abjectly. Uh, do you recall that? I apologized profusely, and I'll be damned if the New York Times the next day didn't print it with absolutely no apology. That's the way we, you know. No credit line either, I might add. Uh, in ten years, of course, that'll be credited to Groucho Marx, you know, an official whip, uh, or a W.C. Fields or something like that. Uh, do you recall, you know, one of the... One of the <laughs> but there was a guy in early days of television who came on, uh, speaking of of uh, trivia, all right. Now, now we'll bring up the, the the trivia of the punster world. This is a real in bit of trivia. What character? Uh, he had a curious quality of pomposity about him. The kind of uh, the Donish pomposity. You know what I mean by Donish pomposity? It's the kind of pomposity that uh, Alastair Cook has. Yes, he, he, he's, he's carried pomposity to a, a fine art, really. Uh, only in America, by the way, would we go to get... Uh, w- America's a fantastic country. Only in America would they get an Englishman to do the official program called America. That's, that's so classically American. And then it's official. I mean, if you got an America to do it, somehow it wouldn't have the ring of, of truth and official. Them. Can you imagine England doing a show called... Uh, the Empire, and they get Shepard to do it. You know the history. No way. But but it's very very logical to to American intellectuals to, to rush to England to get a, to get an Englishman to play uh, Abe Lincoln in Illinois. The, the really definitive Lincoln would be say Lawrence Olivier. That would. <laughs> can you imagine? Can you imagine uh, the, the the old Vic? Coming to America to get Dustin Hoffman to play Richard the uh, Third, forget it. <laughs> Only in America. But uh, you know we got a great country, so you have to accept it for what it is. And I, uh, one, one of the one of the things that our country does, you know, we have a curious quality of uh, of uh, intellectual uh, uh, feeling of intellectual. Uh, you can you can uh, you can pick up the paper any day, and you know that you're reading about an English actor. The minute that you see rave reviews, uh, that, that uh, almost every critic believes that an English actor is, by definition, a superb actor. Oh, boy. I have, I have been in the presence of some English actors that made the Armour Swift Ham Company look like they were producing caviar. But, the <laughs> but they had an English accent. And somehow, that's official. So uh, I, I, I have to apologize for that pun that I came up with. I... I really do, and uh, and uh, I would like to know, though, before we leave the subject, because it's very important to me, I'd like to know whether or not you like our new theme. I want to hear whether we should keep this. Do you like that? Do you like it, Jerry? Well, we've got three positive votes there. Uh, so if you like the theme that which we have selected, uh, incidentally, if you're curious about the theme, uh, it's a very rare piece of music. Uh, would you please bring it on? It's called Magnificence and Power Through the Ages. Which 
you know, it's it's kind of right, I think. After all, I've got 50,000 watts here in RKO behind me, so that's a, that's a hell of a wallop. Bring that up there, Greg. Oh, yeah, this is unbelievable. It's fantastic. I mean, a heavenly chorus coming out here. Didn't you just see the lights coming on and this vast 200-foot stage? And the gold bombe curtain is going back. And this endless pile of uh, what looks like Nubian slaves coming on dressed in leopard skin, carrying esoteric banners, waving spears. Oh, my God. And we'd have to have this photograph with the backdrop of the pyramids behind it. With a slight hit of the Sphinx off to the left. The seven great wonders of the world. The eighth has just now arrived. <laughs> yes, mankind has celebrated the seven wonders of the world. The giant of Crete. The vast curve of the golden horn. And now, in our time... We are pleased and honored to present the eighth wonder of the world. Oh, my God, I am. <laughs> oh, honey, I love that. Uh, would you please uh, give me another? Because this is, this is one of my favorite uh, LPs. I, I don't have many favorite LPs. But when things are really getting dreary, you know, down in that, we, we have fantastic offices here at the station. I, I've got one. Uh, are, how many of you uh, enjoy antiques? How many of you enjoy antiques? You know, one of, the, one of the new bits with antiques is to take something that's an antique and make it into something modern. Like, say, for example, you get the, uh, an 1810 butter churn and you turn it into a television set. That's considered very hip. Yeah, it is. It really is. I, I know a guy that has an 1847 duck decoy. Tremendous looking duck. It's, you know, it's got a, and he's put a clock in one end and an FM radio in the other end. I ain't going to tell you which end has got which. And, uh, he's very proud of it. And this is, this is a big thing. And, and, uh, here at the station, we've taken cognizance of that. And the office I have is a reconverted 1910 Madison Avenue phone booth. And it's beautiful. Uh, they're very, very tiny. You know, the people were much smaller in those days than they are now. Uh, this was a phone booth for people who averaged 5 feet 3 and weighed 22 pounds. And, uh, yes, you know, it was diet. They didn't eat much in those days. And what they did eat, they ate straw, pieces of uh, wax paper and stuff. So uh, I'm very proud of our office. And so when I, when I get in the office, I've got the only office that they, you know, I have other t two other people work with me, see, and we have to work in it in shifts. We take turns, you know. Yeah, we have a little thing out in front of it, you know, that you, the kind of thing you get in the butcher's uh, place, you know, you take, you pull the number, and uh, you wait out there when your number comes up, and you go and you make a phone call or, you know, read a memo, and then you get up and you go, and uh, the, uh, the next guy goes in. Well, when that, when that, you know, that can get a little depressing. So the other day I was, I was uh, hunched down under the little desk. We have a tiny desk in the office, great little desk. And uh, I must, I must uh, again say that I have to admire the creativity of the, of the decorator department here. 
because uh, I don't know where they got that tiny little dollhouse roll-top desk. It's beautiful. It's really lovely. I, you know, uh, one of these places down on 3rd Avenue there where they sell uh, antique toys, it's great. But you can only get your... It's hard to write or anything on it since it's only two and a half feet tall. And uh, so, yeah, <laughs> it's kind of nice. And we've got this little plastic telephone. They didn't give me a real phone, but I do play around with the one that they've given me. It's kind of nice. It's one of these. It's a 1937 children's uh, plastic French phone. And it's kind of nice. I have it made into a pen wiper, and I sit there, and I play with the phone. And, and uh, so once in a while, when things get a little depressing in that office, which, as you can understand, you know, after all, people have their moods. And, uh, and I, I'm very ashamed that I do, too. I, I, I wish I was a man of steel, but I'm not. I, I get in the office there once in a while, and I'm looking down at my little desk, and, and uh, you know, and I can see Jerry and Lee both looking mad, waiting to get in there. And, and, uh, and so I, I, th- and I find it difficult sometimes because once in a while, it's terrible. Sometimes we, we, we both get caught in here at the same time. And, uh, <laughs> indeed, we almost got arrested the other day. But... Uh, Nevertheless, there I am in the office there, see. And uh, when things get really depressed, I go next door to the palatial suite, which is occupied by one of the secretaries down the hall there. She's got a fantastic suite. And uh, I don't know what she does, but she's got it all, you know, to loudspeakers and stereo, and she's got a water carafe. I've always felt that if you get one of those little brown watercress with the chrome on the top, that this is the official signature that you finally arrive when the company gives you one of those. You never put anything in it, you know. If you ever if you ever drink out of one of those things, you'll probably be drinking 14-year-old swamp water, you know. But nevertheless, to have it there, I'd love to have one. But uh, she's got one of those on her desk. And what's more, it's got ice in it. I can hear it rattle once in a while. So when I go in there, uh, when she lets me stand around in her office, uh, she does occasionally, and and, uh, of course, everything in, in the me- most businesses is all completely 180 degrees out of what the public thinks it should be. Oh, yes. Uh, the public probably believes that Johnny Carson has a fantastic office. Oh, no. No, 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 no. The personnel second assistant clerk, I'll guarantee you, at NBC, who signs the checks to have Johnny Carson's coats cleaned has an office that makes Johnny Carson's office look like a closet in an apartment in, in, in uh, Staten Island. <laughs> Just the way it is. Everything's backwards in the, in the, in the world of uh, entertainment. So when I go down to the uh, secretary's office, you know, I go in there. I have to be very obsequious. Oh, listen, if you, if you cross a phone operator, uh, I, I one time saw Jack Parr uh, have a somewhat... Uh, as, uh, uh, irritated sound in his voice when talking to one of the telephone operators over at NBC. He damn near got fired. I want to tell you, they ripped the phones right out of his office and they told him one more move like that, friend, and it's back to the to the tie and suit company. And you know what happened to him, of course. You know, you, you, that's the secret story of what actually happened to Parr, in case you're interested. One of the phone operators, he picked it up and says, get me Cleveland. She says, who? Who for? What do you mean? He says, this is Jack Parr. She says, Jack who? He says, Parr. He says, well, who the hell are you? He says, I'm Jack Parr. She says, I don't care who you are. You don't talk to me in that tone, friend. And that ended the ball game. I've seen, yes, that's right. And, uh, of course, you realize that NBC recognizes that it's much more difficult to get a good 
phone operator than to get an MC. MCs are uh, stretched from here all the way to the Hawaiian Islands and back, waiting in line. But they can't, you know, I'm, uh, you know, necessity is the mother of the pink slip. <laughs> that was pretty good. <laughs> uh, that came up right out of the right out of the thing there. But uh, nevertheless, uh, uh, I was, uh, you know, I was, uh, I was once in a while, you know, you get down. So I went, uh, I, I came across this LP, and, when, and occasionally when I'm when I'm feeling really down, I go into this uh, secretary's palatial suite, and I ask permission from her, which you have to do in very very polite tones. Uh, if I can play something on her enormous $1,200 custom-built hi-fi stereo set, which came with her office. Uh, incidentally, it's done in the uh, Philippine teak, what is kind of nice. Incident, I might add the speaker enclosure, the left speaker enclosure, is bigger than our whole office. Okay? So she gets a damn good sound out of it. So I put the record on there, and she gives me maybe four or five minutes that I can play it. So... I put the record on and I turn it up and I love to hear this thing. I just sit there, see, and I put earphones on. I hear both sides. See. This is the theme music to, to the march of Alexander the Great through Persia. That's what it is. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, I can feel myself growing when I put this on. Listen. Soldiers stretched out behind me. And all the panoply of the ancient world, and I am Alexander the Great, surveyor of the world that was known to the ancients and the conqueror of that world. Oh, wow. <laughs> hey, wait a minute, now that was pretty good. That was a that was uh, that was Alexander, right? Would you please give me Attila the Hun? These, this is one of my favorite ones. This is when I really get bugged. Give me Attila. I mean, uh, I've always vaguely admired Attila the Hun. Wouldn't you just like to once... Uh, isn't there... I would say uh, maybe seven or eight people in your life that hold uh, some kind of cudgel over your existence. And almost everybody. You know, even, even the late Dwight Eisenhower said that. Uh, you know, here he is. He's a five-star general. And uh, Patton or somebody came in to see Ike. This is a famous moment. Uh, Patton came in and says, I, I've got to have more tanks. And at that point, uh, Ike said, uh, excuse me, uh, general, but we have no more tanks. And uh, this is an actual incident that occurred during the, you know, the invasion of the lowlands or wherever it was. And at that point, uh, Patton says, what do you mean you've got no tanks? You've got to get them. At that point, Eisenhower laid his famous one. He says, look, he says, I work for people like you. I've got a boss. And he just ain't listening. And that kind of threw Patton. I mean, the idea that a five-star general has a boss. I mean, even, the, you know, even the general, uh, <laughs> general MacArthur got fired. So, you know, none of us are safe. If they can do that, I mean, <laughs> where are you going to go? So so uh, uh, whenever I'm, I'm particularly being ground under heel by little short guys with bristly mustaches and gold rim glasses, and this place is filled with them, 
I, I, uh, whenever I'm particularly being ground under heels, see, and I can't remember their names. That's what even bothers me even more than anything else. Of course, it's mutual. So, uh, nevertheless, I, 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 I like to put on my uh, theme of Attila the Hun's ravaging of the Western world. This is Attila the Hun coming down out of the mountains with his avenging horde. I could just see me squatting on that Mongolian pony. <laughs> you know those little short, tough, mad-looking ponies, the ones with all the fur on them? And I've got this bearskin rug that I'm wearing, and my hair is a matted, is a matted mass. And it's filled with the rancid butter like we, uh, we Attila ravaging Huns wear. You know, they wore their hair with rancid butter in it. And I'm coming down out of the Kurdish mountains, riding my Mongolian pony, <laughs> my Mongolian pony. And I've got this, this gigantic club that has bronze studs sticking out of it. And I'm riding down and I'm going to get the Western World one more. Attila the Hun rides again, by God. Now you have to speak in Attila the Hun terms. Now I haven't been at my Attila the Hun language. We have just ridden like mad through a Kurdish village, ravaging and raping as we go. I'm taking my ease in my goatskin tent. I have just dismissed the 17 Nubian handmaidens which have been brought to me. And I'm chewing on a haunch of camel. Yes, which is charred on the outside, but dripping blood from the inside. I can see my, my faithful servant, Kadal. Outside the tent, sharpening my 1,700-pound broadsword. <laughs> and then, just because of the sheer exuberant moment and the realization of my place in history, I scream the fierce cry of the avenging Hunnish hordes. Miles around, peasants cower in the undergrowth. The crowned heads of Europe know that the time is running short. Oh, hell, back to reality. Oh, wow. All right. Okay, rub it in. Final 
the final desk presided over by the eternal judge of us all. You cannot look up at St. Peter and say, look, I'd like to put it on my American Express card. I know that I owe a debt to the world. 